Section 14 of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section 14 A Pilgrim on the Gila. Part 3. With business I was sated. Pidcock and the attorney for the United States, I can remember neither his name nor the proper title of his office, for he was a nobody, and I had forgotten his features each new time that we met, had mapped out the trial to me, preparing and rehearsing me in my testimony, until they had pestered me into a hatred of them both. And when word was brought me here, dining at Lowell Barracks, where I had imagined myself safe from justice, that this same attorney was waiting to see me, I rose and I played him a trick. Possibly I should not have done it, but for the saloon-keeper in the afternoon, and this sustained dining now. But I sent him word that I should be with him directly, and I wandered into Tucson by myself. Faithful to my last strong impression there, I went straight to the tiny hotel garden, and in that darkness lay down in a delicious and torpid triumph. The attorney was most likely waiting still. No one on earth knew where I was. Pidcock could not trace me now. I could see the stars through the palms and the strange trees. The fountain made a little sound. Somewhere now and then I could hear the antelope, and cloaked in this black serenity I lay smiling. Once an engine passed heavily, leaving the station utterly quiet again, and the next I knew it was the antelope's rough tongue that waked me, and I found him nibbling and licking my hand. People were sitting in the latticed passage, and from the light in the office came Mr. Mowry, untying a canvas sack that he held. At this sight my truancy to discretion was over, and no head could be more wakeful or clear than mine instantly became. "'How much do you want this time, Mr. Jenks?' inquired Mowry. I could not hear the statesman's reply, but thought, while the sound of clinking came to me, how a common cause will often serve to reconcile the most bitter opponents. I did not dare go nearer to catch all their talk, and I debated a little upon my security, even as it was, until my own name suddenly reached me. "'Him?' said Mowry. "'That there tailor-made boy? They've got him sleeping at the barracks.' "'Nobody but our crowd's boarding here,' said someone. "'They think we're laying for their witnesses,' said the voice of Jenks and among the various mingled laughs rose distinct a big one that I knew. Ho, 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 well, yes. Tell you about witnesses. Here's all there is to them. Spot cash to their figure and kissing the book. You've done no work but what I told you, he added sharply. We haven't needed to worry about witnesses in any shape, Bishop. That's good. That's economy. That little eastern tourist is harmless. Leave him talk, Bishop. Leave him tell their story. It's going to cost the whole stake, though, said Jenks. Deserted Jericho, remarked old Meekum. I don't try cases for nothing, Bishop. The deal's covered. 
My clients have publicly made over to me their horses and saddles. Oh, ho, went the bishop. But this last word about the horses was the only part of the talk I could not put a plain meaning upon. Mr. Mowry, I now saw, re-enter the lighted door of the office, with his canvas sack in his hand. This'll be right here in the safe, said he. All right, answered Jenks. I'll not be likely to call on you any more for a day or so. Hello, said the office clerk, appearing in his shirt-sleeves. You fellows have made me forget the antelope. He took down a lantern, and I rose to my feet. Give us a drink before you feed him, said Jenks. Then I saw the whole of them crowd into the door for their nightcap, and that was all I waited for. I climbed the garden fence. My thoughts led me at random through quantities of soft dust and over the rails, I think, several times, until I stood between empty and silent freight trains, and there sat down. Harmless? It seemed to me they would rate me differently in the morning. So for a while my mind was adrift in the turbulent cross-currents of my discovery. But it was with a smooth, innocent surface that I entered the hotel office and enjoyed the look of the clerk when he roused and heard me, who, according to their calculations, should have been in slumber at the barracks, asking to be shown my room here. I was tempted to inquire if he had fed the antelope, such was the pride of my elation, and I think he must have been running over questions to put me. But the two of us marched up the stairs with a lamp and a key, speaking amiably of the weather for this time of year, and he unlocked my door with a politeness, and hoped I would sleep well, with a consideration that I have rarely met in the hotel clerk. I did not sleep well. Yet it seemed not to matter. By eight I had breakfast and found the attorney, Rocklin I shall name him, and that will have to answer, and told him how we had become masters of the situation. He made me repeat it all over, jotting memoranda this second time, and when my story was done he sat frowning at his notes with a cigar between his teeth. This ain't much, he said. Luckily I don't need anything more. I've got a dead open-and-shut case without it. Why don't you make it deader, then, said I. Don't you see what it all means? Well, what does it all mean? Either the man was still nettled at my treatment of him last evening, or had no liking for amateur opinions and help. Otherwise I see no reason for the disparagement with which he regarded me while I interpreted what I had overheard piece by piece, except the horse and saddle remark. "'Since that don't seem clear, I'll explain it to you,' he said, "'and then you'll know it all. Except their horses and saddles, the accused haven't a red cent to their names, not an honest one, that is. So it looks well for them to be spending all they've apparently got in the world to pay council fees.' Now I have this case worked up, he pursued complacently, so that any such ambiguous stuff as yours is no good to me at all, would be harmful, in fact. It's not good policy, my friend, to assail the character of opposing counsel. And Bishop Meekum, 
Are you aware of his power and standing in this section? Do you think you're going to ring him in? Great goodness, I cried, let me testify, and then let the safe be opened. Rockland looked at me a moment, the cigar wagging between his teeth, and then he lightly tossed his notes in the waste-paper basket. Open your safe, said he, and what then? Up steps old Mowry and says, I'll thank you to let my property alone. Where's your proof? What word did any of them drop that won't bear other constructions? Mowry's well known to have money, and he has a right to give it to Jenks. If the gold could be identified, I suggested. That's all been attended to, he answered, with increasing complacence. I'm obliged to you for your information, and in a less sure case I might risk using it. But, why, see here, we've got em hands down. And he clapped me on the knee. If I had met you last evening, I was going to tell you our campaign. Pidcock'll come first, of course, and his testimony'll cover pretty much the whole ground. Then you see the rest of you I'll use mainly in support. Sergeant Brown, he's very strong, and the black woman, and you. I'll probably call you third or fourth. So you'll be on hand, sure now? Certainly I had no thought of being anywhere else. The eminence of our trial was now heralded by the cook's coming to Rockland's office, punctual to his direction, and after her, Pidcock, almost immediately. It was not many minutes before the more important ones of us had gathered, and we proceeded to court, once again a combination extraordinary, a spectacle for Tucson. So much stir and prosperity had not blossomed in the town for many years, its chief source of life being the money that Lowell Barracks brought to it. But now its lodgings were crowded, and its saloons and Mexican dens of entertainment waked to activity. From a dozing sunburnt village of adobe walls and almond trees, it was become something like those places built in a single western day of riot extravagance, where corner lots are clamored for and men pay a dollar to be shaved. Jenks was before us in the room with his clients. He was practicing what I always think of as his celluloid smile, whispering and all hail with everybody. One of the prisoners had just such another mustache as his own, too large for his face, and this had led me since to notice a type of two large mustaches through our country in all ranks, but of similar men, who generally have either stolen something or lacked the opportunity. Catching sight of me, Jenks came at once, friendly as you please, shaking my passive hand, and laughing that we should meet again under such circumstances. When we're through this nuisance, said he, you must take dinner with me. Just now, you understand, it wouldn't look well to see me hobnobbing with a government witness. See you again, and he was off to someone else. I am confident this man could not see himself as others, some others at least saw him. To him his whole performance was natural and professional, 
and my view that he was more infamous by far than the thieves would have sincerely amazed him. Indeed, for one prisoner I felt very sorry. Young black Curly was sitting there, and in contrast to Mr. Adams, down whose beard the tobacco forever ran, he seemed downcast and unhardened, I thought. He was getting his deserts through base means. It was not for the sake of justice, but from private revenge that Mrs. Sproud had moved, and, after all, had the boy injured her so much as this? Yet how could I help him? They were his deserts. My mood was abruptly changed to diversion when I saw among our jury specimens of both types of Meekum, and prominent among the spectator throng their sire, that canny polygamist, surveying the case with the same forceful attention I had noticed first in the House of Representatives and ever since that day. But I had a true shock of surprise now. Mrs. Sproud was in court. There could be no mistake. No one seemed to notice her, and I wondered if many in the town knew her face, and with what intent she had returned to this dangerous neighborhood. I was so taken up with watching her and her furtive appearance in the almost concealed position she had chosen, that I paid little heed to the government's opening of its case. She had her eyes upon black Curly, but he could not see her. Pidcock was in the midst of his pompous recital when the court took its noon intermission. Then I was drawn to seek out black Curly as he was conducted to his dinner. "'Good day,' said he, as I came beside him. I wish I didn't have to go on oath about this, I said. Oath away, he answered doggedly. What's that got to do with me? Oh, come, I exclaimed. Come where? He looked at me defiantly. When people don't wish to be trailed, I went on, do I understand they sometimes spread a blanket and lead their horses on it and take off their shoes? I'm merely asking out of a traveller's curiosity. I guess you'll have to ask them that's up on such tricks, he answered, grinning. I met him in the eyes, and a strong liking for him came over me. I probably owe you my life, I said huskily. I know I do, and I hate— You must consider me a poor sort of bird. Blamed if I know what you're driving at, said Black Curly but he wrinkled his forehead in the pleasant way I remembered. Your whiskey was good, all right, he added, and gave me his hand. Look here, said I, she's come back. This took the boy unguarded, and he swore with surprise. Then his face grew somber. Let her, he remarked, and that was all we said. At the afternoon sitting I began to notice how popular sympathy was not only quite against the United States, but a sentiment amounting to hatred was shown against all soldiers. The voice of respectability seemed entirely silent. Decent citizens were there, but not enough of them. The mildest opinion was that Uncle Sam could afford to lose money better than poor people, and the strongest was that it was a pity the soldiers had not been killed. 
This seemed inappropriate in a territory desiring admission to our Union. I supposed it something local then, but have since observed it to be a prevailing Western antipathy. The unthinking sons of the sagebrush ill tolerate a thing which stands for discipline, good order, and obedience, and the man who lets another command him they despise. I can think of no threat more evil for our democracy, for it is a fine thing diseased and perverted, namely independence gone drunk. Pidcock's examination went forward, and the half-sack of gold from the haystack brought a great silence in court. The major's identification of the gold was conducted by Rocklin with stage effect, for it was an undoubted climax. But I caught a most singular smile on the face of Bishop Meekham, and there sat Mrs. Sproud, still solitary and engulfed in the throng, her face flushed and her eyes blazing. And here ended the first day. In the morning came the major's cross-examination, with the room more crowded than before, but I could not find Mrs. Sproud. Rockland did not believe I had seen her, and I feared something had happened to her. The bishop had walked to the court with Jenks, talking and laughing upon general subjects, so far as I could hear. The counsel for the prisoners passed lightly over the first part of the evidence, only causing an occasional laugh on the score of the major's military prowess until he came to the gold. "'You said this sack was one of yours, Major,' he now inquired. "'It is mine, sir.' A large bundle of sacks was brought. "'And how about these? Here are ten, fifteen, about forty. I'll get some more if you say so. Are they all yours?' "'Your question strikes me as idle, sir.' The court rapped, and Jenks smiled. "'They resemble mine,' said Pidcock, "'but they are not used.' "'No, not used.' Jenks held up the original, shaking the gold. "'Now I'm going to empty your sack for a moment.' "'I object,' said Rockland, springing up. Oh, it's all counted, laughed Jenks, and the objection was not sustained. Then Jenks poured the gold into a new sack and shook that aloft. It makes them look confusingly similar, Major. I'll just put my card in your sack. I object, said Rocklin, with anger, but with futility. Jenks now poured the gold back into the first, then into a third, and thus into several, tossing them each time on the table, and the clinking pieces sounded clear in the room. Bishop Minkham was watching the operation like a wolf. "'Now, Major,' said Jenks, "'is your gold in the original sack, or which sack is my card in?' This was the first time that the room broke out loudly, and Pidcock, when the people were wrapped to order, said, the sack's not the thing. Of course not. The gold is our point, and of course you had a private mark on it. Tell the jury, please, what the private mark was. He had none. He spoke about dates and new coins. He backed and filled, 
swelled importantly, and ended like a pricked bladder by recanting his identification. "'That is all I have to say for the present,' said Jenks. "'Don't complicate the issue by attempting to prove too much, Mr. Rockland,' said the judge. Rockland flushed and called the next witness, whispering sulkily to me, "'What can you expect if the court starts out against you?' But the court was by no means against him. The judge was merely disgusted over Rockland's cardinal folly of identifying coin under such loose conditions. And now came the testimony of Sergeant Brown. He told so clear a story as to chill the enthusiasm of the room. He pointed to the man with the moustache, black curly, and yellow. "'I saw them shooting from the right of the road,' he said. Jenks tried but little to shake him, and left him unshaken. He was followed by the other wounded soldier, whose story was nearly the same, except that he identified different prisoners. "'Who did you say shot you?' inquired Jenks. "'Which of these two? "'I didn't say.' I don't know. Don't know a man when he shoots you in broad daylight? Plenty was shooting at me, said the soldier, and his testimony also remained unshaken. Then came my own examination, and Jenks did not trouble me at all. But when I had likewise identified the men I knew, simply bowed smilingly, and had no question to ask his friend from the East. Our third morning began with the negress, who said she was married, told a scattered tale, and soon stated that she was single, explaining later that she had two husbands and one was dead, while the other had disappeared from her ten years ago. Gradually her alarm subsided, and she achieved coherence. "'What did this gentleman do at the occurrence?' inquired Jenks, indicating me. That gemman? He just flew, sir, and I don't blame him for being no worse obscure than the whole party. Yes, sir, we all flew, excusin' they two poor chillin, and we stayed till the currents was ceased. But the gentleman says he sat on a stone and saw those men firing. Land, I seed him goin' like he was gwanter if folk grant. He run up the hill, and the general he run down like the dead judgment. The general ran? "'Lord gracious, honey, y'all could have played checkers on the coat-tails of his.' The court rapped gently. "'But the gold must have been heavy to carry away to the horses. Did not the general exert his influence to rally his men?' "'No, sir, the general went down the hill, and he took his influence with him.' "'I have no further questions,' said Jenks. "'When we come to our alibis, gentlemen,' I expect to satisfy you that this lady saw more correctly, and when she is unable to recognize my clients, it is for a good reason. We've not quite got so far yet, Rocklin observed. We've reached the haystack at present. Aren't you going to make her describe her own confusion more? I began, but stopped, for I saw that the next witness was at hand, and that it was Mrs. Sproud. "'How's this?' I whispered to Rocklin. "'How did you get her?' "'She volunteered this morning, just before trial. We're in big luck.' 
The woman was simply dressed in something dark. Her handsome face was pale, but she held a steady eye upon the jury, speaking clearly and with deliberation. Old Meekum, always in court and watchful, was plainly unprepared for this, and among the prisoners, too, I could discern uneasiness. Whether or no any threat or constraint had kept her invisible during these days, her coming now was a thing for which none of us were ready. "'What do I know?' she repeated after the counsel. "'I suppose you have been told what I said I knew.' "'We'd like to hear it directly from you, Mrs. Sproud,' Rocklin explained. "'Where shall I start?' "'Well, there was a young man who boarded with you, was there not?' "'I object to the witness being led,' said Jenks, and Bishop Meekum moved up beside the prisoner's counsel and began talking with him earnestly. "'Nobody is leading me,' said Mrs. Sproud imperiously, and raised her voice a little. She looked about her. "'There was a young man who boarded with me. Of course that is so.' Meekum broke off in his confidences with Jenks and looked sharply at her. "'Do you see your boarder anywhere here?' inquired Rocklin, and from his tone I perceived that he was puzzled by the manner of his witness. She turned slowly, and slowly scrutinized the prisoners one by one. The head of black curly was bent down, and I saw her eyes rest upon it while she stood in silence. It was as if he felt the summons of her glance, for he raised his head. His face was scarlet, but her paleness did not change. "'He is the one sitting at the end,' she said, looking back at the jury. She then told some useless particulars, and brought her narrative to the afternoon when she had heard the galloping. Then I hid. I hid because this is rough country. "'When did you recognize that young man's voice?' I did not recognize it. Black Curly's feet scraped as he shifted his position. Collect yourself, Mrs. Sproud. We'll give you all the time you want. We know ladies are not used to talking in court. Did you not hear this young man talking to his friends? I heard talking, replied the witness, quite collected, but I could not make out who they were. If I could have been sure it was him and friends, I wouldn't have stayed hid. I'd have no call to be scared." Rocklin was dazed, and his next question came in a voice still more changed and irritable. "'Did you see anyone?' "'No one.' "'What did you hear them say?' "'They were all talking at once. I couldn't be sure.' "'Why did you go to the haystack?' "'Because they said something about my haystack and I wanted to find out if I could. Did you not write their names on a paper and give it to this gentleman? Remember, you are on oath, Mrs. Sproud. By this time a smile was playing on the features of Jenks, and he and Bishop Meekum talked no longer together, but sat back to watch the woman's extraordinary attempt to undo her work. It was shrewd, very shrewd, in her, to volunteer as our witness instead of as theirs. She was ready for the paper question, evidently. 
I wrote, she began, but Rocklin interrupted. On oath, remember, he repeated, finding himself cross-examining his own witness. The names you wrote are the names of these prisoners here before the court. They were traced as the direct result of your information. They have been identified by three or four persons. Do you mean to say you did not know who they were? I did not know, said Mrs. Sproud firmly. As for the paper, I acted hasty. I was a woman, alone, and none to consult or advise me. I thought I would get in trouble if I did not tell about such goings-on, and I just wrote the names of Will, of the boys that came around there all the time, thinking it was most likely them. I didn't see him, and I didn't make out surely it was his voice. I wasn't sure enough to come out and ask what they were up to. I didn't stop to think of the harm I was doing on guesswork. For the first time the note of remorse conquered in her voice. I saw how desperation at what she had done when she thought her love was cured was now bracing the woman to this audacity. Remember, said Rocklin, the gold was also found as the direct result of your information. It was you who told Major Pidcock in the ambulance about the seven sacks. I never said anything about seven sacks. This falsehood was a master-stroke, for only half a sack had been found. She had not written this down. There was only the word of Pidcock and me to vouch for it, while against us stood her denial and the actual quantity of gold. I have no further questions, said Rocklin. But I have, said Jenks and then he made the most of Mrs. Sproud, although many in the room were laughing, and she herself, I think, felt she had done little but sacrifice her own character without repairing the injury she had done Black Curly. Jenks made her repeat that she was frightened, not calm enough to be sure of voices, especially many speaking together, that she had seen no one throughout. He even attempted to show that the talk about the haystack might have been purely about hay, and that the half-sack of gold might have been put there at another time, might belong to some honest man this very moment. Did you ever know the young man who boarded with you to do a dishonorable thing? inquired Jenks. Did you not have the highest opinion of him? She had not expected a question like this. It nearly broke the woman down. She put her hand to her breast, and seemed afraid to trust her voice. I have the highest opinion of him, she said, word painfully following word. He, he, used to know that. I have finished, said Jenks. Can I go? asked the witness and the attorneys bowed. She stood one hesitating moment in the witness-stand, and she looked at the jury and the court. Then, as if almost in dread, she let her eyes travel to Black Curly. But his eyes were sullenly averted. Then Mrs. Sproud slowly made her way through the room, with one of the saddest faces I have ever seen, 
and the door closed behind her. We finished our case with all the prisoners identified, and some of them doubly. The defense was scarcely more than a sham. The flimsy alibis were destroyed even by the incompetent, unready Rockland, and when the charge came, blackness fell upon the citizens of Tucson. The judges' cold statements struck them as partisan, and they murmured and looked darkly at him. But the jury, with its meekums, wore no expression at all during any of his remarks. Their eyes were upon him, but entirely fish-like. He dismissed the cumbersome futilities one by one. Now three witnesses have between them recognized all the prisoners but one, he continued. That one, a reputed pauper, paid several hundred dollars of debts in gold the morning after the robbery. The money is said to be the proceeds of a cattle sale. No cattle have ever been known to belong to this man, and the purchaser had never been known to have any income until this trial began. The prisoner's name was on Mrs. Sproud's paper. The statement of one witness that he sat on a stone and saw three other of the prisoners firing has been contradicted by a woman who described herself as having run away at once. It is supported by two men who are admitted by all to have remained, and in consequence been shot. Their statements have been assailed by no one. Their testimony stands on the record unimpeached. They have identified five prisoners. If you believe them, and remember that not a word they said has been questioned, here the judge emphasized more and more clearly, he concluded with the various alternatives of fact according to which the jury must find its several possible verdicts. When he had finished, the room sat sullen and still, and the twelve went out. I am told that they remained ten minutes away. It seemed one to me. When they had resumed their seats, I noticed the same fish-like oracular eye in most of them unchanged. Not guilty, said the foreman. What? shouted the judge, startled out of all judicial propriety. None of them? Not guilty, monotonously repeated the foreman. We were silent amid the din of triumph now raised by Tucson. In the laughter, the handshaking, the shouting, and the jubilant pistol-shots that some particularly free spirit fired in the old cathedral square, we went to our dinner, and not even Stirling could joke. There's a certain natural justice done here in spite of them, he said. They are not one cent richer for all their looted twenty-eight thousand. They come out free but penniless. How about Jenks and that jury, said I, and Stirling shrugged his shoulders. But we had yet some crowning impudence to learn. Later, in the street, the officers and I met the prisoners, their witnesses, and their counsel emerging from a photographer's studio. The territorial delegate had been taken in a group with his acquitted thieves. The bishop had declined to be in this souvenir. "'That's a picture I want,' said I, "'only I'll be sorry to see your face there.' 
I added to black curly. Indeed, put in Jenks. Yes, said I. You and he do not belong in the same class. By the way, Mr. Jenks, I suppose you'll return their horses and saddles now. Too many were listening for him to lose his temper, and he did a sharp thing. He took this public opportunity for breaking some news to his clients. I had hoped to, he said, that is, as many as were not needed to defray necessary costs, but it's been an expensive suit, and I found myself obliged to sell them all. It's little enough to pay for clearing your character, boys. They saw through his perfidy to them, and that he had them checkmated. Any protest from them would be a confession of their theft, yet it seemed an unsafe piece of villainy in Jenks. They look disappointed, I remarked. I shall value the picture very highly. If that's Eastern sarcasm, said Jenks, it's beyond me. No, Mr. Jenks, I answered. In your presence sarcasm drops dead. I think you'll prosper in politics. But there I was wrong. There is some natural justice in these events, though I wish there were more. The jury, it is true, soon seemed oddly prosperous, as Sterling wrote me afterwards. They painted their houses. Two of them, who had generally walked before, now had wagons, and in so many of their gardens and small ranches did the plants and fruits increase that, as Sterling put it, they had evidently sowed their dollars. But upon Jenks territorial displeasure did descend. He had stayed away too much from Washington. A pamphlet appeared with the title, What Luke Jenks Has Done for Arizona. Inside were twenty blank pages, and he failed of re-election. Furthermore, the government retaliated upon this district by abandoning Camp Thomas and Lowell Barracks, those important sources of revenue for the neighborhood. The brief boom did not help Tucson very long, and left it poorer than ever. At the station I saw Mrs. Sproud and Black Curly, neither speaking to the other. It was plain that he had utterly done with her, and that she was too proud even to look at him. She went west, and he as far east as Wilcox. Neither one have I ever seen again. But I have the photograph, and I sometimes wonder what has happened to Black Curly. Arizona is still a territory, and when I think of the Gila Valley and of the boy orator, I recall Bishop Meekham's remark about our statesmen at Washington. You can divide them birds in two lots, those who know better and those who don't. Do you follow me? End of section 14 End of Red Men and White by Owen Wister